Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Soccer Doctrina Project. Today, Matthew Duganzik and I, Ryan Brady, have the privilege of being joined by Matthew Minard. Matthew Minard, did I get your last name's pronunciation correct? You did. You're, you're in a small group. You are in a small group. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear. So I guess what's interesting about this bunch is all of us are presently seminary professors. I'm actually going to be going to Thomas Aquinas College this next year, but presently we're all working at seminaries and have that experience. We also work to some extent in, in moral theology at, at times. Is that right, uh, Matthew Minard? Yeah. Yeah. For the seminary I do. Yeah. Awesome. So today, in a sense, we're just kind of doing a spin-off of our previous podcasts, which pertain to the manuals of theology. And we thought it would be interesting to consider the work De Revelazione of Garrigou, because in some ways that seems to be like a manual, and to raise the question of whether he was a manualist. And who better to discuss that with than Dr. Minard, who did the translating of that work, which has just been published by Emmaus Academic. So to get the conversation started, I thought it would be interesting to read a couple of quotes, somewhat lengthy, but a couple of quotes from Gary Gu that pertain to the manuals, because a lot of those who I personally discussed this topic with recently thought, well, Gary Gu obviously is a manualist. And that actually is not, certainly not clear. And so we want to talk about what that is, et cetera, but let's start by looking at these quotes. So the first is from On Christian Perfection and Contemplation. There he says this, for many, adequate theological training is given by a manual that can be studied in three years and that one does not feel impelled to reread because all it contains is quickly exhausted. Who can claim that the perfection of theological culture is found in such a study? And then he goes on and says, others, you know, go on to read St. Thomas and they read him profusely for a long time. And they know that's necessary to have real profound knowledge. But at the least here, he's saying then in this quote that, you know, you can't exhaust what you need to know in a manual. But perhaps the more interesting quotation is from the three ages of the interior life. In introducing that work, he says, quote, we have not given this study the form of a manual because we are not seeking to accumulate knowledge, as is too often done in academic overloading, but to form the mind, to give it the firmness of principles and the suppleness required for the variety of their applications, in order that it may thus be capable of judging the problems which may arise. The humanities were formally conceived in this fashion, whereas often today, minds are transformed into manuals, into repertories, or even into collections of opinions and of formulas whose reasons and profound consequences they do not seek to know. All right, so I can leave it at that. He actually goes on for another paragraph, but maybe what's interesting there is he's saying we're not using a manual kind of format because we're not seeking to accumulate knowledge. Instead, we're trying to kind of have wisdom and have a real understanding of the suppleness of various principles. Certainly then for Gary Goulagrange, 
manuals did not lead us all the way to wisdom. With that, let me open up the floor though for other comments. May I actually bring to this conversation, we're, we're letting it be a little bit free form, sort of for the listener. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we didn't plan our smorgasbord of quotations. Right. But I, I you know, I have the benefit of having PDFs. And so I want to just jump through. There are a couple of things. I can't believe it came up this frequently in the order of things. When I searched for manual, just as like, I remember there's a good quote in there. There are actually several in there. Um, so let me just use a couple of quotes there too. And we're only doing this to sort of level set, just so we kind of, first of all, at least bat away the dismissive, he's a manualist kind of um, critique. But I think we'll circle back around, of course, to to affirm the place for something like a manual education, you know, at certain levels of, of formation though. So I think that, you know, we're trying to do two things here for the listener, but I, I really do like to blast apart a certain superficial narrative about Garagu. So uh, he says at one point here, uh, page 229, today it's asked whether this Wolfian, so notice he's actually critiquing the kind of rational uh, Wolfian uh, approach of certain um, ecclesiastical uh, faculties. I apologize. I'm coming back from COVID. So he was critiqued for being supposedly a kind of covert follower of Christian Wolf, one of the, the systematizers of Leibnizianism. But he says, today it's asked whether this Wolfian fashion of dress, if not really this Spinozist fashion of uh, dress, without completely being a straitjacket, does not mean interfere with the natural movements of Thomistic philosophy's peripatetic arms, so to speak. And here's the key, uh, key uh, sentence. Many scholastics think that it does, even among those who practically speaking, because they teach in seminaries at the time, must follow the new order of studies, uh, which came down uh, through the manuals that have been adopted, uh, especially since the 18th century. Some masters indeed uh, have reacted and have returned their works to the classical ordering, basically, and then I'm summar summarizing, following Aristotle's own ordering in the physics, et cetera. Sorry, that was not as good of a quote, but here's a, here's a better one. Um, the order to fall, follow in rational psychology, at least in that of peripatetic Aristotelian philosophy, is obviously that of the De Anima and not what we find in the theological treatise De Homine. Granted, think about how dismissive this sounds too. It's easy to write a manual of philosophy by transcribi transcribing parts of the Summa Theologiae that are related to being, truth, the sensible world, the soul, God, and moral thought. However, a philosophical treatise should be something more than such a juxtaposition of texts. And one more quote. To present this doctrine concerning potency and act, it's a different section of the book here, in an a priori manner, as happens often in many, happens in many manuals, is to suggest that it has merely fallen from the sky or that it is only a simple pseudo-philosophical translation of common uh, language. And he does a couple other moves like that in the book too. So I'm just noting the fact that kind of pedagogically, he had a real concern with trying to teach effectively, you know, philosophy in this case, in a way that traced along Aristotle's method. That's kind of this continued theme that keeps coming up. What's, what's apparent to me from listening to uh, the quotes that both of you have brought here is that um, Father Garagou Lagrange seems to have been quite concerned with two things. And the first was present teach, teaching philosophy or theology uh, as wisdom and not just as a matter of memorization of important texts mm -hmm. and also to compare it to other alternatives, other claims that people make. And to explain not only why his view 
might be correct, but why other views are, are thereby incorrect. And I think that this comes out to the fore in this particular book, De Revelazione, because if anyone approaches it expecting to find a manual, they might at first feel affirmed by the clear organization, the headings and a lot of the terminology, but they're gonna be surprised at uh, the breadth of the considerations of the um, expansiveness of the topics that are studied and the depth which, which, with which um, other, other views are considered. I thought it was particularly fascinating when, for example, uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange in this book was comparing not just you know, liberalism and modernism and secularism and naturalism and so on, but also things like modern physics uh, to ancient philosophy, drawing comparisons to them and saying, well, modern physics claims such, which is exactly what such and such a pre-Socratic philosopher claimed. And Aristotle has already refuted this. So therefore I can draw this connection and say that this is the way to argue against that. And I mean, it's, 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 it's almost beyond exhaustive. Yeah, and one of the things I think that comes up when these, these remarks about the manuals are, are found in his works is the fact he always liked to be able to show synthetically how the, whatever the main principle in each subsection of the text kind of plays itself out in the conclusions. And he felt that there was a tendency in the manuals to sort of present conclusions in, in a sort of linear fashion without showing the actual, um, you could say, discursive connect, connective tissue between them to show the subordination of principles and then, and then how they illuminate the various problems under consideration. Um, yeah, the, every single chapter in De Revelazione kind of goes into the topic and then mines it and then shows, you know, shows down to its depths as much as he can in, in a course textbook, you know, kind of what's at stake about dogma or you know, the, these critiques of uh, materialism or of epistemological naturalism. Or, you know, he has a, a chapter that's 66,000 words just on the problem of the resolution of credibility versus the supernatural resolution of the theological virtue of faith, where he kind of goes into the crevices of the history of how this was debated in the later school, which is quite different than just a, a, a quick layout of, okay, here's what the SCOTUS thought, you know, okay, that's your one little paragraph. Here's what Suarez thought. Maybe we have a couple of other, um, you know, Juan de Lugo and a few others, and then we move along. I mean, he kind of enters into the, the warp and woof of the, the argument, uh, you know, quite at, at length, um, you know, and so I think of it more as being a teaching treatise instead of anything that would be a manual per se, right? It's, it's something, it's like a textbook that's written above the level of your students, but you might use to stretch them. Um, but it's, you know, it's a kind of a textbook that needs its lecturer is, is what I think of it as, you know, or treatise, a treatise that needs its lecturer, not a uh, textbook even per se. I think that makes a lot of sense, but it also, it also raises an interesting question, which one of the quotes that you, Matthew Minor, uh, read from, and then one of the comments you made on it, both alluded to the fact that perhaps Father Garrigou Lagrange thought that the manuals nevertheless had a place. In other words, they, although this book we might not categorize as a manual or doesn't, it doesn't, he does seem to be dismissive of them. He doesn't, he seems to be dismissive of them insofar as they shouldn't be taken to teach you, give you real wisdom, teach you real philosophy. But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have other uses. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't quote Zigliara or Hugon, or truth be told, he wouldn't quote people like Charles René Billuard, the the Thomistic commentator who really is already on a kind of vein toward 
the 19th century manuals. Well, I forget, Billy War, I forget when the publication, I think that's 18th century, right? Um, that's, that's written though, that's written as an attempt to, to reform the Dominican uh, mm -hmm. order of studies to kind of tighten it up according to modern methods. But if you read the, the Summa Sanctitomi to Atome, it's, um, it's not the kind of broad, uh, in the middle of Baroque arguments that you find in John of St. Thomas, for example, it's clearly summarizing things a bit more for each of the main treatises. Um, and uh, Billuar is in some ways his main touch point for lots of things. He often kind of goes backwards into the tradition through him. So, you know, clearly he can't have a, a sort of total animus. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of culture that would, you know, maybe, I don't think he'd put it exactly this way, but that would run you into... Um, calling yourself a theologian after finishing an ecclesiastical cursus of studies, right? You finish an STB and an STL level study using a manual, especially at an STB level as we would today, and, and then all too quickly think that you, however, have theological science. And I, I want to really uh, apologize. I didn't realize how groggy my brain was from the COVID until this <laughs> conversation. So I, I'm, I'm having to kind of concentrate to, to think a little bit. So I'll let you respond to that so I can recoup myself. We appreciate the concentration, but don't worry, you sound perfectly lucid. Um, as a side note, I, sometimes I often think that I'm not making much sense when I'm talking and then I listen to a recording of my own lectures and I go, oh, I actually sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, continuing the fake it with till you make it uh, line here. Um, another, but another, like a related issue is what the purpose of studying theology is. And indeed, a lot of people are studying it to become theologians um, and are seeking, you know, truly to speculate about the divine or about divine things. Um, but there are also other people who study theology both in Garagu's day and in our day, for other reasons, some people are becoming um, pastors in the lay sense, uh, you know, being youth ministry and so on, and some people are becoming priests. And it's very much worth asking whether or not, um, since we all are here, four majors of priests, whether or not, all, would, you know, would that all priests were brilliant, wonderful, speculative theologians, but do they all have to be? Right? Yeah. yeah. There's something to be said for the usefulness of having a book on your desk as a priest that can help you find the answers that you need without really perhaps understanding the theory that would get you to that answer on your own. Yeah, I think some, something like this was operative in the pressures that led to the casuistic manuals as well, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. noted. Um, now, I think that there's still a problem if you think about the priest's role as being primarily a casuist who deals with sins in the confessional. Right. But of course, that's not a 19th century or 18th century problem. You know, that thing goes, that whole narrative goes back in the West into the 12th and 13th century. It's the same pressure. It's like the, the thing that scares a priest is, is what do I do in the confessional? It's like preaching and that. Um, I mean, maybe other things too. Um, but you know, that practical need is actually a felt thing that probably I would say as a formator myself, I wonder if I provide enough for, right? You know, because probably as someone who likes to think on the kind of philosophical level or even the speculative level in theological matters, what is my, how does my bioethics class meet up well with their um, confessional prep, right? I think that these things actually should be more tied together. Um, so it is a different sort of culture, not, not all priesthood students are, are called to be, you know, speculative theologians. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I think that there probably is, there's, there's room for, if you have good pedagogues, like a, a more, uh, or a less speculative form that would be closer to the sort of manual he, he's, you know, somewhat deriding. But if you look at someone like, you know, um, so you're familiar with Gret, uh, the philosophy? Yeah. yeah, so the it was like a summary of John of St. Thomas. Um, it's great, but it's like, a, it's like a, the answer has fallen from the heaven. I mean, it's, it's like a great summary of the cursus philosophicus, um, but you need a heck of a professor to make sure that people see as it just marches through each of the topics, the, the actual, what's at stake in the debate. And at a level that's gonna meet that kind of, I'm forming a priest who needs enough philosophy to be able to do his theology. So you're really like doing this balancing act. Um, I sometimes think that Garagu's texts would be hard, quite hard to teach out of unless you had a real upper level group of SEMs. Not to be negative about teaching seminarians, but it's just, uh, I've learned, like they're just not, even if they're bright, they're not necessarily interested in, in doing speculative stuff because that's not what they're there for, it's not their vocation. I was wondering that myself as I was reading this book um, because I was, I was uh, blessed to get a copy of this new book just a week ago. And as it's in two volumes and I've been looking through both volumes and as I'm reading it, one of the things I'm wondering is whether or not I could assign some of it. Definitely material from this book will be making it into my classes, but the question is whether I will assign it. Because the thing is that Garagu's consideration of these topics is so precise that like, I feel like there are really two kinds of texts to, that, that, that make for good lectures or discussions. One is a text like the one you're talking about that has a lot of great content, but it isn't really explained. So the professor's role is to fill in the gaps. Another kind of text might be one like certain papal encyclicals that are very long and sometimes difficult to digest. And so you help isolate the main ideas and pull them out. And you kind of do the opposite. Here's mm -hmm. all this theory. Let me zoom in and figure out what are the takeaways, right? But this is kind of the best of both worlds because as honestly, I mean, I'm going to sound like a total nerd here, but I was like so drawn into this text. I was reading it like it was a Harry Potter novel and I was 12 years old again. And, um, and I, I loved it, but I'm sitting here wondering like, how could I assign this? Because I just like, well, Garrigo already explained it. You know, any questions? <laughs> like, is that, is that what I would do? <laughs> and I apologize. I, my wife tells me I talk too much. So especially in over people. So I'm not trying to take over poor Ryan Brady here, but I, I keep thinking of things and I don't want to forget it. So let me blame, blame the COVID. So I'm trying to keep yeah, ahead Ryan, of it. Jump in. Go ahead. No, so go ahead. the the um because the style is actually kind of like all of those various you know tractatus day right it's some development of one of the sub treatises within the summa theologiae right that in the western church that becomes kind of a standard especially roman model for presenting of course your curses of studies but even just for doing theology break it apart into the treatises and then you know you you kind of carry the science forward treatise by treatise so it's a, the text is a sort of state of the science of the treatise on revelation in the Thomas school at a, around, you know, really about 1915 with some additions on and off through 1950, um, right? But it's, it's more of like a snapshot of the science than, I mean, than anything else, than a manual, because it's not really a teaching text. It's just, it happens to be a snapshot of the science that's written knowing it's going to be used in a classroom. But it's a snapshot of the science is like the primary thing that's right there. Um, you know, because if you think about it, if you if you read even like the things like Lonergan stuff when he taught, it's the same sort of thing. It's written at a level that's not really 
quite, you know, forming people at the Greg, but it is, but it's also kind of carrying forward. I mean, in his way, but you could say this for uh, B.O., for example, the same thing. You know, B.O. is writing for his fellow theologians, but knows he has to teach at the Greg. Um, so, so that makes an, it's an interesting point regarding genres, but go on, uh, Ryan. Let me just ask you this. You said something about it being changed up until 1950. There were various versions or something. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the text is pretty stable from whatever I'd have to look to see again. I think it's, you know, in the teens that the first edition comes out. I have yeah, to I have the, okay. I have the 1921 version in Latin. I had no idea there were. So it's, versions. it's pretty, it's pretty stable. There are, there's a citation in the 1950 version. I know that is at least from the forties, something is journey. He cites journey's leglise actually. Must oh, be the interesting. First wow. Must be the first volume though. But, uh, and there's one or two other things too. Okay. Uh, and there's something he cites from Marie-Joseph Lagrange, actually, I think from like the late 20s, which was kind of surprising in its own way, given yeah. some of the politics there. Um, but uh, the, the, there's a version in the 20s, I believe, or maybe the early 30s, and I think it's the third edition is what it's published as, that is an, amen, is a, an abbreviated edition. And interestingly enough, I think um, Aidan Nichols in his book that, that was published from down at um, down there at Ave Maria, he says that's the last edition. He's wrong. It goes up to a fifth edition, which is then this 1950 edition that we used as the basis for this text. They're okay, very close. The full editions that are not abridged are very close. It's very small changes. Um, you know, it's not like to Mr. Common Sense or Sense Commune where he reorders everything in, in the third edition. So it's pretty stable, but the one thing to watch out for is if you ever find a single volume that covers everything, uh, that's definitely the, the, the abridged edition. Is there, okay. is there any a French edition or is it all in Latin? Latin. It's yeah, there's, Latin. there is a quirky little summary version. I'm not sure if you ever ran across in English by Walsh was his name. It was a student of his who did an oh, abbreviation. Right. Um, but it's kind of half based on the book, I think partially based on course notes. It has a bunch of stuff about paleontology at the beginning and dating of the world, which has nothing to do with the text, but something apologetic in Walsh's mind, so. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, if I may, I want to go back to uh, Dr. Duganzek's point about it kind of being, it sounded like you were saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but that he's super precise and yet he has a lot to say and he says it all so clearly that there's nothing for the teacher to add in a sense. Right. Yeah, I'm so, pretty sure that if you just wanted to know everything you er ever needed to know, you could just read both of these books cover to cover, and then you would just be done learning. <laughs> so he's going into more detail, I suppose, in the, than some of the manuals would have. Maybe that's one thing we could say, but I wonder if he profited from some of the manuals that he had been exposed to, where he learned kind of how to have some high degree of precision, and profited from that, and yet wanted to expand upon it. So I thought of as well, while you were talking, Dr. Minard, about what Benedict XVI had said before about how he kind of felt like the manuals were leaving. I don't even know if he said the manuals, but the old scholastic tradition was uh, super like precise, but it was super dry as well. So I wonder if what Gary Good did was he had the same kind of impression where it's too dry and boring to just kind of lay it down a bunch of principles without getting into the reasons why we are sure about these principles and without extrapolating them. 
but he didn't get to the extreme that say, in my opinion, John Paul II did. Because if, and this is a good point to ask you actually, Dr. Miner, since you're the expert on Gary Gu, is it true that he said of JP2's work when he was his dissertation director, that he writes much and says little? You ever heard that one? I've heard it. I've never been able to <laughs> confirm it. You know, because okay. people bring this up privately and whatnot. Uh, yeah. I, I tend to, I, there are floating quotes like that. So I tend to think it wasn't actually true because it sounds, sounds almost too negative of a thing for it to have become public. It's very rare for him, very rare for him to be publicly negative about, about someone. He's very which, measured. Which is fascinating since he ends up kind of very uncharitably being called the sacred monster, right? Because it's almost like he was so charitable, actually, but yet he's called this monster. Well, interesting. So he didn't uh, actually say that, but it does seem to me, or at least as far as you know, he didn't say that. But it does seem to me there's some truth to that kind of the sentiment. When you read an encyclical of John Paul, even Veritati Splendor, that has so many great nuggets, uh, he's kind of speaking around in circles and hitting the same thing again and again at different points. And there's not a lot of order. Whereas Gary Gu seems to have some more order, and yet he also kind of extrapolates. So maybe just what do you think about, uh, do you think that he would kind of agree with Pope Benedict that there was a need to get away from the dryness of the old way of doing things and add some more context. Is that, you think that's, that's accurate? Well, I, here's where I, so maybe I'll take the premise and make a, a certain critique of it because this is one of my frustrations. This has been sort of one of my frustrations in my own sort of meanderings through the church. Um, the comments like that by Pope Benedict, who was, whose thought was very influential on me. And I mean, I think highly of him, so I don't, look kindly on some of the critiques that he is subject to nowadays from certain traditionalist quarters. Um, but nonetheless, I, I don't hold much water to that because just because he had bad professors in Germany who, who you know, a, pl a place that was not, you know, the, the seedbed for the best of, you know, scholastic thought, uh, just because he had that doesn't, doesn't mean we should take it as a normative judgment then about how to, to think of the whole period. Um, Clearly, clearly, Garrigou is living within a, a milieu in Rome with whatever he might say critically. He's he is comfortable with a certain kind of semi-manual culture. I mean, I think it's I think it once again to kind of hit that same point. He 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 clearly was influenced by a number of the works of Zigliara uh, and Zigliara's Propodutica uh, uh, at Sacrum Theologium is is very much um, a kind of base text for the structure of this text, actually. Um, it's shorter, but it's clearly in the background, but also to his philosophical works. Um, some of the others like Gonet and um, Godin, and uh, then again, I keep going back to Billuar. They're all somewhat manualists. They're just not, you know, 1890s manuals. Um, and so, you know, he may have had certain, he had frustrations in philosophy with the pedagogy, but then again, the Thomistic, the Thomistic manuals were different, right? That they even, someone like if you read, so how familiar are you guys with Antoine, Antoine, uh, Antoine Godin, sorry, COVID. Not at all. Zero. Oh, so just take it. I mean, what it, it's kind of like in some ways, like a slightly beefier version of Gret. Uh, there, you know, with the, with the progress of modern philosophy and kind of the changes in the Western church, the theological and philosophical culture does kind of split, as you know. I mean, it, it, the, it takes a lot to hold the big scholastic culture. You need universities that can form for years thinkers. Um, 
So there's a way that at, in the Thomas school, after John of St. Thomas, I don't like these simple narratives, but there's a truth to it, that, that things kind of go mostly on a kind of hold. There, you know, there's not a lot of deep speculation across the board, the way that you find whenever you look at the, the somewhat almost interminable questions in the cursus uh, philosophicus. But you, you do have still smaller versions of it, abbreviated versions of what's going on. They're kind of setting aside all the little intricacies of Spain. And so someone like Godin is, um, is, he writes in the period of Descartes, an attempt to sort of at least answer some of the, the stuff. You know, you have some responses to Descartes and it's still structurally John of St. Thomas. And then there are problems after the revolution, but in someone like Zigliara, although Zigliara is affected by some of the Kantianism in the order of studies, he's still doing basically something that's peripatetic in its ordering. And so, you know, there's, there's an awareness of the, just the ordering of treatises. So, you know, you just, you know, you, you, even if you happen to go out of order, as soon as you jump into cosmology, you're going to be pretty close to doing things like the physics in the order of the physics. So you have a continuation of a sort of philosophical mode of doing things that then again, by the, the beginning of the 20th century with the reform of studies within the Dominicans, they tap right back into their, their tradition very well and kind of carry that forward. Um, and so I, I don't think he got, he even had to experience as a Dominican, sort of what you might've experienced at a, a diocesan seminary, right? Imagine a diocesan seminary professor from America that studied in Rome, that, that then had to come back to the US where there's not a philosophical culture. You would have to have a pretty easy set of texts for laying out, okay, here's your basic peripatetic or, you know, Aristotelian philosophy. Um, you know, that, I mean, that would be the sort of thing that Ratzinger is, is experiencing as well. It, you know, you, because you don't have this continuous culture that's very easy to pick up within an order, like it happened within the, the Dominicans. Dominicans never really lost a kind of continuity with the Baroque tradition. It just became kind of stult, stultified. And I think that's really important because that means Garrigou is not a neo-scholastic. This is, if I could die and have this stuck on my um, headstone, <laughs> he is yeah. not a neo-Thomist because there is no neo there. It's, I mean, they are paleo, even if, it, if, even if it answers some of the same kind of questions that all the neo-Thomists are addressing. It's different. Um, Interesting. That's talking all around. And part of the problem is we're kind of at this meta level on top of, you know, on top of a text that we've not talked about. So I do understand we're floating a little bit above, but. Yeah. yeah. And, and before we even dive more into the text, I want to kind of remain at just, uh, I want to get some general idea of the milieu that's going on with the other manuals and how you don't think he's a neo-scholastic, but some of the neo-scholastics at least uh, had a certain set of manuals that people always discussed. So there was, you know, De Ecclesia, De, De Uno at Trino, so De Levante, et cetera, yeah. right? But I'm going to stop ahead. right there because this is an example of where people who want to dismiss the theological culture of the Latin church in the late 19th century and early 20th century create a single label to cover multiple genres. So you used it, and I'm not. I'm pointing at you because I need to keep my blood pressure up because it'll keep me, I think, a little active here. So, um, <laughs> the combative Slav. But uh, so you guys mentioned mentioned like Tanqueray last week. Tanqueray is a good example, but we could use actually Hugon's theology manual as well here of a manual that would be used for studies. Two or three volumes covers everything. It does say, you know, okay, yeah, 
de Deo Uno, de Deo uh, Creante, et Elevante, yeah. et cetera. But those are just subsections within this cursus of dogmatic studies. We'll just consider the dogmatics manuals here. Okay. But where you had volumes that were the you know, standalones, you know, on, I mean, it could be something like on inf the infused moral virtues or something like this, or on, um, on charity or on human acts or on De, De Deo Uno by itself, which is gonna be very standard or De Deo Trino by itself. I don't think of those as manuals insofar as, you know, they're, they're more technical and not providing single, they're only manuals because you can hold them in your hand, but they're not providing a single cursus of studies within, you know, a short and abbreviated set of two or three volumes, right? Once again, what I said for De Revelazione, De Ecclesia is like this. It, it's a snapshot of the science. If you read like the De Ecclesia treatises by, I don't remember if Schultes wrote one, but the ones that were written at, at the end, around the time of Garagu, they're highly technical. Trow, below, yeah, they well, both so, up when Franzelin. Yeah. And even B.O. is, you know, he's writing it actually in the context of the Christology treatises. And it's mm -hmm. a snapshot of what ecclesiology looked like at that time as a science. Yep. And it happened to look like a manual for teaching because these guys wrote these things because they were also teachers in Rome, right? So they kind of had, they were, they were kind of stuck in a sense because of their own vocational necessities, right? So they're not, they're not writing standalone treatises, you know, like a kind of Karl Barth kind of project or something, right? Well, well why are they not standalone? I mean, my understanding is that they're teaching a class on it and they write a, a book that's can be held in your hand for the class. Take but I don't take it to be, but let's take our dismissive manual as the one Garagu talks about, as though it's just sort of a list of positions, at least the better ones, if you look at someone like even to take someone outside of, you know, my camp, so to speak with BO, it's very, it gets into the speculative issues in detail, or a guy I like to preach about one of Garagu's students, Emmanuel Duranzo, I dare you to open up his, all of his sacraments treatises, 3000 pages on, on orders. And tell me that it's, oh. you know, tell me yeah. that it's merely a, you know, a manual. Yeah. Right? Well, or open up his dogmatics manual. And like, even there, you're in a place where it's on the edge of what you would call a manual, because it's, you know, it's kind of all contained two volumes, but it kind of delves for, you know, the, the De Lochis is 150 pages within it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this mixture of summaries that feel a bit more like Tanqueray. Um, I bet if we looked at like philosophy, someone like DeRayMaker and others would be good examples over there. I just, I, I'm kind of not prepared to think through the shorter philosophy manuals right now. Um, but okay, there's that genre, which is the kind of very abbreviated. Tanqueray's spiritual manual is a good example of this because it's, it's easily chunkable that way. Um, whereas the treatises that are handing on kind of the questions of the science, but for teaching, there's something different than merely, you know, a teaching manual like there's yeah. something in there i'm just trying to make a point that there's this cover that we use for two different things that are going on that tend to cross pollinate in these genres that i think that people don't distinguish especially among those who once again want to pardon my my language but crap on the latin theological culture of the 19th and 20th century because they want to just take and say all of it is just the superficial thing which is just not and i apologize yeah, I know of, I'm of course long, but i really kind of feel strongly about this that like the manual term is almost too ambiguous. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. And so that's actually what I was trying to get at, though. I was wondering if you would suggest that it's the neotomists that are writing the manuals in the sense that Garrigou was talking about, whereas some of the Thomists, maybe properly speaking, the paleotomists, that they were actually, you know, getting into a lot more detail and didn't just have a manual. Is that yes. possibly the case? Because it does seem like there's all of these standard tracks that people are using. And well, maybe just answer that first of all. I think that's more true than not, at least. So okay. for example, to the great Suaresians of the era are writing something that's more than just mere manuals. I mean, it's the Suaresian school pushing itself, you know, forward in the turn of the century. You know? Good. And then, because I did think it was striking when I kind of looked at some of the things that Garrigue wrote, De Grazia, De Deo Creante Relevante, take that and compare it with somebody else, say De Grazia, Boyer or whatever, Garrigou is talking about uh, the Summa. I mean, every one of these things, he's got De Grazia, he's got De Deo Uno, Petrino. So, uh, yeah, but, but they're commentaries on, this, on the scripture, or sorry, on, on uh, the Summa, <laughs> and the same with the, um, you know, Salvatore Christi, what is it, something like that, on the uh, Christ yeah, the Savior. The Christi Salvatore, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that those books are actually better understood as commentaries. So yeah, there's another genre. Because so he's using genre. the title that would be kind of, there are some manuals out there that are just very basic, giving you the basics you hold in the hand, but then he's actually just doing a commentary on the Yeah, same, so this, I would title. say we've got, three, we've got three genres now. We've got the, we've got the pejorative manual. Right. Sure. Okay, there. There is you know, the theological treatises that sort of look like those manuals because they are sort of being used for teaching, but they're also theological treatises in the style of what Latin theology looked like at that period. And then there's also commentary, which is probably going to be more within, like, I, I'd have to stop thinking about this. It feels like more of a Dominican thing to do because you're commenting directly on St. Thomas, but I, I don't want to limit it to that. But clearly in Garagu's case, he sees what he's doing there as a kind of commentary that highlights the main principles. Even some of the reviews of those books made the point. If you're looking for all the real technicalities that you'd get in a big De Grazia treatise, you're not going to get it. But if you want to get the kind of clear commentary of Thomas himself in view of the later Thomas school that gives you the principles, at least, that are operative, that's what you'll get there. And I think that comes out of his own style of teaching. I think that when he had to teach, Father Cadgett and Cuddy would actually know this pretty well because he's floated around talking to people who, who either had Garagu or at least had his, the last of his students. I think that he, he taught, and I think it was normal at the end of that period, to, to teach in a kind of commentary style just on top of the Summa. So you're running through the Summa and your curses of studies, and you're, you take the school, the Thomas school as, as something that, that adds to each of the articles. So you're reading in view of the later commentators, but you're kind of staying at the level of commenting on the text to try to, to guide the exposition of your courses. So. All right. Well, certainly then nobody who knows anything, who looks at more than just the title of some of these works of Garrigou is going to be tempted to say that he was a manualist. Uh, but if we look at De Revelazione, at the least we have a kind of a, it's, it's not just a commentary, it's a orderly explanation of what theology is, the fonts of revelation going through apologetics and other things in an orderly fashion. Uh, Perhaps someone then would be tempted to say, well, this is a manual. I mean, it's a big one. There's a lot here. You got to have a big hand, but it's still just a, 
uh, <laughs> a manual. So, uh, I mean, what do we say to that? So, I mean, maybe we should talk more. We certainly want to shift into just saying, uh, what is the content of the, the work on Revelation in your two, two volumes that you translated, um, but also maybe just a quick segue of, well, what, how do you think uh, that it's, it's different from a manual? Yeah, so maybe it's actually better to start with, well, what is it? Because then it helps you understand why it's okay. a little bit different, different than at least a summary manual. Mm -hmm. um, so over the course of, and I, the exact dates of this are a little bit unclear to me still, but over the course of like the, we'll say 18th, but really 19th century, there developed uh, sub-treatises at the start of the cursus of theological studies in the West, especially that you know among the scholastics would follow a kind of Thomist approach um, to start talking about the problem of the the rational credibility of Revelation itself, a kind of propedeutic for showing how the ascent of faith is also, however, even prior to being supernatural, is also rationally credible, even though that rational credibility, the ultimate befitting re reasonableness of the faith is not the same as its supernaturality. So all of these issues of modern epistemology, of modern naturalism, you know, whether or not the, the mind could even be open to something that would be above reason, right? All of this kind of has to be addressed as a, a kind of apologetic introduction. And it opens up whole questions of, well, what is apologetics understood as a general defense of revelation guided by theology, but only really in terms of reason alone? So that's a big question that takes like 100 years to resolve. And in some ways, this, this text comes to as a, 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 a real crystallization of what the Thomas School's answer to that was. So I mean, we can't really do all the details of it, but you know, it's his, his defense of that kind of understanding of apologetics, not about this or that particular mystery of the faith, but about the possibility of revelation itself and what its rational credibility is. Um, this, this text represents kind of the settling of matters, I think, pretty soundly in the Thomas line. Um, so, you know, the text therefore has to deal with all of these, you know, various issues uh, that have been raised in modern philosophy regarding, you know, the nature of human reason as being open to the supernatural, like all those issues about nature and grace that, that we think about as mid 20th century are quite operative in this genre. So he has to deal with, you know, the possibility of revelation, its necessity. I mean, there are other things about propedeutics he does about the nature of, of, of theology as well. But then he just starts walking through, okay, well, what is supernaturality? What are miracles? What is credibility? Okay, now, how do we deal with modern agnosticism, modern naturalism, um, it, you know, et cetera? Then how do we deal with the distinction between rational credibility and faith? And then he gets all that in place. He asks what the motives of credibility are. What are their probative value? And then what are then the second volume is basically, okay, now what are the motives of credibility for Christianity? So there's a sense in which the whole second volume is just a meditation on what is actually the reasonable justification at the level of reason for the proposed truths of faith. Sorry, you notice I'm trying to keep myself from slurring the two orders. You know, I, I don't, that I won't blame COVID for. So the, the volume is kind of, that's sort of the big picture of what it's doing. It's akin to another sort of messed up treatise of this era, which is the De Ecclesia treatise, because that treatise gets stuck right after De Revelazione because of like stuff at Vatican 
one about you know the, about papal infallibility as well as um, kind of post-Protestant concerns about the relationship between ecclesial uh, you know magisterial authority and the proposition of the truths of faith, and so all of a sudden things about the church meander into that treatise, and they really should be put way off until at least Christology. Um, and even he says that, you know, but it was very normal at the time to stick that guy there. So why do I tell you all this, though? It's to give you an idea of how what you have is within a generally, we'll just say post-Thomist world, because in many ways, Sorisians are just post-Thomists. So it becomes, you know, normal to do this treatising that follows the structure of the Summa Theologiae, um, you know, especially uh, especially among the schools in the neo-scholastic period though, but it's there in the West. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to avoid simplifying the narrative too much, but it's there, right? That you have developing within theological culture in the West. Oh, we've got these two other things we have to add that's not, that aren't exactly in St. Thomas. The De Locis is like this too, the on theological sources, which really you know, deserves its own place too here, stuck in fundamental theology. Um, and, and so as it develops, you have to, you know, write treatises that kind of work out all the issues, right? You can't get away with writing 10 articles of propedeutic the way that St. Thomas does in the first question of the Summa Theologiae, right? You really have to open up the, the issues. Um, and so once again, now that's the kind of thing that's covered in this text. Now, why, you know, why once again, not to call it a manual? I, I think that kind of the way that the other Matthew has put it, uh, you, you find when you read this, you sort of feel like every nook and cranny has been looked at. Now, it technically has, and there are all kinds of other, there are other topics, but they weren't the issue of the time, right? At this time, faced with the problems of what, what came out of the First Vatican Council and the modernist crisis, these were the things to be dealt with regarding the relationship of faith and reason. And there's still perennial questions, even if we have other focuses today. Um, so I know I feel like I've circled back around, but it's this idea that this is sort of the state of the Thomas science at the time is, is sort of the, what's going, what's going on, but it's on, in this case, it's that treatise on, on divine revelation. So you'll find various versions of this uh, on the true religion, on the true faith, et cetera. These are versions of that. I forget what Tanqueray has, for example, at the beginning when he does apologetics, but. It's interesting. Uh, I, I don't know what to think about that exactly. Sorry, just let me say this, if I may, Matthew. Um, yeah, go ahead. But it, it seems to me, uh, having looked at a, you know, a number of manuals last week, just before Matthew and I had our, our podcast, uh, I was struck by how some of them did address some particular issues. Some of them did go through, as I mentioned in the last podcast, indifferentism. They even went through some other religions. They went through liberalism. And so I'm confused as to why just the fact that Garrigou has a few more pages, we don't consider it still to be a manual and why Garrigou himself obviously didn't think of it as a manual, but. Well, okay, so let's, so what is the context for the liberalism thing? Because I do remember that coming up in the, con, uh, the context of your podcast. Yeah. So, because he has, he has something like 30,000 words, if I remember, maybe it's 25,000, uh -huh. devoted to the problem of the necessity of the state to receive divine revelation when it is sufficiently proposed. Yeah. I, I would, I mean, sure, yeah. some people may have certain length discussions of that, but in, in his, his mind here, it's a kind of little treatise 
on that issue within the context of this subtreatise of theology, right? So he goes through on the duty of receiving. Yep. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So on indifferentism and liberalism, he kind of has an outline of it and how they're opposed to church teaching Mm -hmm. for about, you know, what that's only, I'm just trying to look here. That's like 10 pages there. Then a proof regarding the uh, individual person's duty to receive natural religion, then going through with responses to objections and whatnot. Proof, uh, proof by reason for another, and that's by another 15 pages, very tight pages though, and that those. Then regarding the state, the, the common duty to receive sufficiently pro- promulgated uh, religion. I mean, so it's, once again, it's just, yeah, it's lengthier, but it's, I'd have to see the texture comparing it to, to be, to feel fair that I'm drawing the correct com- contrast, I guess. Well, no, I think it is. It certainly is more in depth. In fact, I mean, I looked at this earlier, but didn't realize quite how in depth it is. Um, So certainly he adds a lot of depth to it, more so than most of the others. And 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 let's and then I'll let Matthew respond. Poor guy's been waiting here. Just maybe this will guide the the response a little more too. If we want to use a description that he has, and then just apply it to a text wherever that description goes, he has in mind texts that would not have a kind of presentation of, you know, arguments against at some length, for example, what are the, what are the, you know, what are the reasons for the wrongness of this principle at, at the heart of a kind of latitudinarianism or of Catholic liberalism, et cetera, right? It would be a manual in his mind would be something that would just present the opposed positions, maybe quickly say, okay, they're wrong because of this, but that's it without entering into sort of the argumentative structure for why the position is wrong and what its implications would be. I think he sees himself as doing the latter, but I'll let Matthew. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that's getting at what I was going to say, which is I I think that the fact that there are more pages or more words is more significant than a matter of quantity because a manual is supposed to be a reference book. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be able to look something up and say, this is what I was looking for. Here it is. Thank you. And I don't think that this book would be very good for that because you would get lost trying to find exactly what you were looking for. In addition to that, as the other Matthew was just saying, um, there's a lot of stuff that Garagu deals with that you simply wouldn't need to deal with outside of uh, academic context. Because if you're a priest dealing with people confessing their sins, most of them are not going to say... um, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I'm tempted to this and that material heresy and so on. There might be implicit, uh, they might be thinking in, uh, implicitly in terms of materialism a little bit, but definitely the way to deal with them is not to give them a treatise of uh, what Parmenides said about the atoms and so on. Um, or one more example where I yeah. flipped it open right now. He's in the middle of talking about the rational credibility, like the actual going through the various motives. And he talks about, okay, God's holiness and he permitted sin. And then he has this long footnote where he rehearses probably 300 words, the Salamanca Carmelite's position on the motive of the incarnation. Oh, wow. Right. And that's actually the first place I saw it before Dylan Schrader wrote. wrote and, now, and that's what I was just going to say. Now, now what we need to do is get Father Dylan Schrader on here for the next one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, but that's an example, right? He like, he goes and it's like really technical stuff out of the Salamontensis. And he's like, notice this one little point I made, which probably works really well in a lecture. It's related to this theological issue. 
Yeah. Like that's an example yeah. of a kind of yeah. he's he's letting his mind as a theologian speak in a way to theologians. I don't know how he taught. Maybe we need to ask Father Cuddy this question. But when I teach, sometimes I'm not sure how much time I'm going to need to cover a topic. So I will put certain topics in brackets. So I'll say, okay, well, if there's if I need time or if there is time, talk about this. If not, go to that. So yeah. that could be his bracketed, <laughs> you know, yeah. motives of the incarnation. If there's time, let's talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. If I could, um, I was going to continue to compare Garigou's work here to the manualist by focusing on the moral section, which is relatively brief in this work. If you look at the second volume, starts on page 253 about Christ's testimony concerning the Christian life. And so we were talking about Pinker's last time. And obviously, I think most people know we're interested in this, that Pinker's critiques of the manuals that there were too focused on law, too focused on sin, didn't talk enough about virtue, didn't talk enough about love, and more things besides. What's interesting to note is that if you read uh, Pinker's critiques of the criticisms of the manuals, um, Garrigou's criticisms of them are almost exactly the same. Wow. And um, here, if you look at his treatment of morality, you'll see that it starts with law. And if you're an anti-manualist, you're going to look here and see, oh, here's confirmation that Garrigou is a manualist. But after law, we get the virtues, which is relatively uncommon. And after the treatment of the theological virtues, we then get prayer, and then we get stuff about humility, and then we get the Beatitudes at the very end. And I think that moral theology was pretty desperate for a lengthy treatment of the Beatitudes at this time. And now it's something in contemporary moral theology we're only just starting to talk about. Bill Madison um, is talking about it at, at Notre Dame. And then um, what's his name? Father Anton Closter had something about it in his doctoral dissertation. Um, so in other words, what I'm getting at is that I don't really see, although, although I would like to see something about sin, I don't see much here about sin. I don't hear a lot of overemphasis on particular actions. I see a lot of talk about the unity of the moral life, uh, living in... Uh, living a Christian life in, in love of Christ and so on and so forth. In other words, it doesn't really look like a moral manual at all. Um, and that's not to say that it, but it also has all the benefits of the moral manuals and that it is quite clear and well-organized and uses a standard terminology and, and so on. And, and actually he has one of those pink hair sounding footnotes in De Revelazione, oh, volume, volume one, it's on page 126 footnote 76. I have a PDF, so it makes life much quicker here, right? Um, and this is one that you find in the Beatitude commentary. This is my chance to do my normal shtick too while you're flipping through. Don't read the English of the Beatitude commentary. It's garbage. Look at the Latin. <laughs> it's, a, it's a paraphrase. The Beatitude oh, okay. translation is a paraphrase. Oh, um, but some modern manuals of moral theology contain almost nothing other than casuistic theology. And in them, moral theology appears more like a science of grave and minor sins to be avoided rather than a science concerning virtues to be perfected. There you go. And it continues, you know, yeah. but when I first read that, I'll be honest, I, I was pretty indignant at, at the people who would have formed us because I, I still kind of have an anti-Service Pinker's bent because I feel like he's a bit overrated because... I, I feel like something in the air was received, if it's not directly from Garrigou, it's from people who are all saying the same things, and he's being attributed as someone who's, you know, the re, the reactor, person reacting within the Thomas line against the casuistry. Well, Garday was writing the same thing. Yeah, too. I mean, I sympathize with that, and my own um, 
the way I put it to the students sometimes is I feel like an archaeologist and that I, I was supposed to inherit a collection at a museum, but my predecessor, instead of preserving it, buried it out in the backyard and now I have to go dig it up again, you know? Yes. And um, uh, with, respect to, with respect to moral theology in particular, what I found in the moral manuals is that people, Pinkeras was not the only one to have the criticisms that he made. I mean, you can see here, Garriger writing way before Pinkeras thought a lot of the same things and the manuals themselves were being reformed accordingly and sometimes I think it would have been better if that that reformation had simply continued, um, and 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 the and the, the the new books that we have today would have developed organically from what came before. And instead, we have this massive rupture, where we just decided one day, you know, we don't like doing this anymore. Let's start over. And um, the new books have certain things to commend them, certainly, but they seem to suffer from exactly the the opposite set of problems that the manual suffered from. But in some ways, perversely, you know, falling into the same things, the same illness that was an effect of the manual, that things end up being disaggregated data instead of unified holes, right? Yeah, One of the right. great things about the ordering of, you know, St. Thomas's approach, I mean, I've got some pretty deep critiques, actually, that we don't need to do here because it's not the purpose of this show. But nonetheless, structure of the Summa is organically well-structured. Well, that's what you would get. With, with a theological culture that has its organic structuring. I wanted to make a couple comments there, if I might, just because I've been floating around doing the same archaeology. You guys were talking about those manuals, and you kind of bumped up as you were looking at them, at this around the 19-teens, them starting to change, that you were finding on the, on the ultimate end at the right. beginning. This right. is a real problem. You find it at the time of Alphonsus, but the great Dominicans at the time, too. Like, I was struck that one of these random people, Daniello Con Con uh, Concina, I think is his name, has 600 pages that's a conscience treatise that opens up his moral theology. So yeah. all the probabilism stuff. Agent versus okay. law, right? Yeah. Yep. And all in great detail. And mm -hmm. so the treatise on human acts got stuck right at the beginning or on conscience or something like that, right, right near the beginning of the uh, moral theology texts. Um, but like you said, there's this internal renewal going on in Latin theology of this period to try to, to give appropriate length to the, the treatise on, on the ultimate end, on beatitude, right? So you, I think you guys looked at some, a couple of different folks. One was the CSSR, but Prumer has it. Merkelbach has, has it as well. Merkelbach is in my book better than even Prumer among the Dominicans. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Ramirez's commentary on De Beatitudine. Uh, you know, this 2000 page monster commentary on, on the truth yeah. on Beatitude. Mm. Um, now it's a commentary and not a manual, but once again, it would be dismissed as a manual if we only had that word manual for these, is a per adjutant's term for these handbooks. Mm -hmm. And it's actually this detailed theological treatise going into like every blasted debate that came up over those five articles in St. Thomas. Like it's really technically good. Um, yeah. That is so to say, to say that wasn't going to happen, I think that a kind of progression would have allowed um, a development, even with all the stuff that happened in the Nouvelle Theologie crisis. Mm -hmm. I really, I feel quite strongly that the, S, the, the SJs who were involved in that, whether it was the people writing or their superiors telling them not to intervene so that they could try and politically maneuver, that they actually stopped something that the Dominicans in Toulouse really wanted to, to have happen. John Kerwin uh, is really, I, I always give 
all praise and honor to him. I mean, it's a book he and I are working on that, um, you know, it's, I think it's just clear, um, you know. Anyway, sorry, that's kind of well, totally, totally unrelated to manuals. I want to say one thing that I appreciate about the way you put all this is that you keep emphasizing Latin theology in Western church. And that's because the rest of us here, I think, are guilty of committing Eastern erasure. <laughs> you would probably just say theology and the church. And you're pointing out that, well, this is just one half of a great whole, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's a sensitivity I've grown in as an Eastern Catholic. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, people think I'm such a Latinizer as it is, you know, but it is important to recall, you know, it's like, you know, this is because also it's, it's Latin theology of post-Reformation, the post-Reformation period. That doesn't mean that you're dismissive, right? When we were in our intellectual formation, if you heard someone say that, you probably thought, oh, here it comes, some anti-Trent diatribe or whatever. No, it's just a way of saying the problems that were very real after the, the Protestant period and then moder all the modern problems of philosophy, here's what it was, the culture in a certain place. Right, I mean, that makes sense. So at this point, I think it might be good at, at least for Matthew DeGansic and I to try to establish some kind of continuity between what we said last week and what we've discussed this week, because part of the idea was let's try in, in this podcast to add some kind of nuance because it may have sounded like, you know, we were saying the manuals are just perfect. I know at the end we did go into some critiques and so they didn't go far enough, but we were overall extremely positive about them. And then we begin this one with reading quotes from Gary Goo that are, are rather negative about them. And then we heard a, a few more critiques. And so how do we bring this all together? I mean, what are your thoughts, Matthew, because uh, Duganza, because it seem like we can still admit that there's a value to having even very truncated treatises on grace or the Deo Uno, whatever it is, even while emphasizing, you know what, it's better what the Thomists are doing as opposed to the Neo-Thomists taking uh, Matthew Minard's uh, contribution into account. It's better to have some kind of further details about these points, but yeah. even the truncated ones are good. Is that, do we want to go in that direction or, or what? So, I mean, if I were to give my little elevator speech on the manuals, it would be that they were very good as reference books, but they're not good for teaching um, theology alone. I mean, if you were a particularly good professor and you could fill in the theoretical gaps, that'd be great. But ideally, a text would do more than that. So I actually do plan on, I've been, I've been giving this a lot of thought for a time. I do plan on, on writing my own textbook in moral theology at some point. And what I want, precisely what I want to do is try to combine the best of the manualist tradition with the best of the contemporary books that we have and write what I think should have come out as a moral theology textbook in 1975, but updated to you know, the 21st century. And what I wanna do in particular is write chapters on moral uh, topics that give theoretical defense of a Catholic account of such and such a moral issue, but then also at the end, summarize the main points and use the traditional um, manualist as it were, terminology to describe them so that the students could on the one hand get into the theory and try to understand it but on the other hand also later after they've learned it use the book as a reference guide to refresh their memory so that when somebody asks a particular moral question they can look it up and go oh, oh right that's this case of that and come up with an answer 
So that way I don't get my inbox filling with students' inquiries after they went to a hospital and aren't sure whether such and such counts as extraordinary means of preserving life. Yeah. What do you think about that, Dr. Miner? No, I think, first of all, I think that's an, both an admirable thing, and although I wouldn't be able to use it in my seminary, because the problem is we have no Eastern texts, so my courses yeah. are pastiches of uh, selections. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that reflects in some ways, you know, my concern, which actually has, so this podcast has enabled me to maybe think of my response, like by us talking. I think it's important to kind of push our nose into this, this category and just recognize that there are two different tasks, right? That it is quite a fine thing to have a reference book that shows you the lay of the land. You know, it's like that little book, it's different. It'd be clunkier, but you know, that little book by Schumacher. Um, what, what is that? The philosophical map, you know, look it up, you know, but it's that little hundred and some page book. And the whole purpose of it is kind of like, overall map of philosophical problems. Now, whether or not it does it, you know, I, it was influential for me once upon a time, I probably look at it now and say, uh, but <laughs> having a map is important, right? Yeah. I sometimes think of those manuals by Pole or Pola or whatever, yeah. the Preuss set. Yeah. In some ways it's clarity on stuff, even though it's kind of Swarisian. Yeah. Um, it's, it's nice. It's kind of like the, the, the back Jesuits manual too. Like, you know, you get the lay of the land and you kind of know, okay, here's the stuff that's at stake. So if you have a Thomist version of that, it's like great to have that lay of the land, right? Mm -hmm. And then there just happens to also be within the Latin theological culture of that era, then treatises that people were kind of writing in their own voice, right? That go mm -hmm. through the issues that are marked by their own kind of character at that period of the science. So like, as I'm flipping through this, I see more and more of this stuff in footnotes where clearly Garagu's got like the Dominican spiritual authors he read and he has to cite them in a footnote because he just can't help but draw the connections, right? So there is within in the culture something that's you know also, okay, now if you wanna really be a theologian, you're reading your peers work as well. Now, because they may overlap sometimes, you know, we have to always be on guard to just be aware of that fact. But, you know, even a text like um, On Divine Revelation actually sort of does that because it uses that Roman device of big text, small text. You know, they have small text, which is the more right. stuff that at yeah. least somewhat kind of creates two levels in the book where it's not quite one level with the bigger text is a summary manual, but it's closer to that. And then the smaller text in the footnotes is the technical details kind of spreading out. Um, so I think that it's actually, you know, both are sort of necessary and then you need, and this is what we don't have, you need an integral culture in which this stuff kind of holds together. Cause you know, these books hold together because you have different levels of faculties in which students as undergraduates and graduates and practical degrees and um, doctoral focused degrees get trained to ingest the tradition, which we have so lost. Because right, so we just need to reform Western civilization. Everything will be great. Have at it, man. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the hills. I, I'm away yeah. from home, but I'm going back to the hills. You know, I, yeah. I consider myself the real hillbilly Thomist. Yeah. <laughs> Very, good. Very good. But so I think that we're in agreement there, though. But but you yeah. do sort of need to find like a kind of middle too, though. Um, which in some ways he's doing here. It's just a great length. But I think that having something like that for people who are doing moral theology would be really useful for the Latin Church in your seminaries. Wonderful. Thank you. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Minard, for joining Dr. Dugancic and I.
We really appreciate the conversation. And thanks a lot for your laborious work in translating Gary Gu. And then thanks for relating his wisdom to us. It was my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.